We are delighted that this episode of Starts at the Top is sponsored by Avato CRM Solutions. Avato CRM Solutions designs and delivers award-winning customer service, business process outsourcing, and digital and intelligent automation solutions of some of the world's most respected brands, as well as innovative charity and public sector clients. They partner with clients to help them define their customer experience and transformation strategies by implementing the right technology, people and processes to improve their customer journey while driving new efficiencies and helping them prepare for the future. To find out more about how Avato CRM solutions could help an organisation like yours and to receive a free no obligation chat, visit avato.co.uk forward slash Wales Air Ambulance. I think it's also incumbent on leaders to be brave and talk about vulnerability, but we're brought up with this idea of leadership being, you know, you have to show the world that you can do the job. Sometimes that's not how you feel. Welcome to a brand new episode of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital and change. I'm Zoe Ammer. And I'm Paul Thomas. Our podcast is all about leadership and brings you interviews with leaders who we believe are driving a positive change in the world. Change comes in many forms and we're equally interested in speaking to leaders who are making incremental change and shifting the dial within their organisations as we are speaking about huge systemic changes that impact the world of work. The driving force of our podcast is to share these stories across sectors and industries so that we can all learn from each other. Today we're sharing the second episode of two with a focus on mental health. Last time out it was Ben Lindsay, OBE, founder of Power the Fight, and this week it's our conversation with Sarah Hughes, Chief Executive Officer at Bind. This was a fantastic conversation with a leader who I admire so much. I thought Sarah was so thought-provoking on leadership and mental health and some of the things that the sector needs to do differently. So this is a Great chat, really broad ranging with a lot of food for thought. And at the start of our last episode, we shared a little bit about our own experiences with mental well-being. And I've even had a couple of messages um, since that from from listeners checking in with me on on WhatsApp. So that was nice to have as a little output of of what we do. Um, This week, we said we'd discuss some of the ways that we both cope with these challenges. And Zoe, we talked a little bit about this after the episode because... We both mentioned a, a, a challenge with claustrophobia and I mentioned how I avoid the tube as much as possible in London and, and when I can get on, on any line that goes in a circular direction because a lot of that stuff is outside. Nice. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, like you, I'm not a fan of uh, in, enclosed spaces. Uh, I think last time I also talked about how I, I do get anxiety just generally and one of the things that I found that uh, really helps me with that is just to take the management of mental health just really really seriously and for me that really started during lockdown um, so I think like a lot of people I found the start of that first lockdown really hard really challenging we were all so worried about what was going to happen weren't we with everything that was going on 
So I decided that I needed to be really proactive about making time for exercise, listening to music, really, really looking after myself, probably for the first time in a very long time, taking sleep really seriously. Uh, And that has been really transformative for my mental health. So I've I've learned a lot, I think, over the last three years about how it's a bit like it's like your physical health in many ways, isn't it? You have to start from a certain base level of physical fitness in order to have that stamina uh, to cope when you might need to run for the bus or go on a long run or whatever it might be. I think mental health is, is something where you have to kind of have this regular habit of really looking after yourself yeah what about you yeah no I was going to say I I posted on this a couple of weeks ago to on LinkedIn and and I think it's really important the the physical side of your your health and it hadn't really been that important to me I was sort of saying in that post that I sort of wonder at how how on earth we ever managed I mean how on earth I ever managed to sort of commute into London five days a week and at one point, I was sort of dropping off, you know, me and my wife dropping off kids at nursery first thing in the morning, leaving work early to go and pick them back up, cooking and all the sort of things that sort of now I think, well, how on earth did I fit those in? And it was during that time where I suddenly started to realise that, you know, you know what, travelling into London every day, buying your lunch in London every day, going out for drinks after work, that sort of thing does take a, a, a toll. Um, so I really started to get into my um, my running. Um, it's hard to begin with, did the sort of the obvious couch to 5K thing. But it's so essential now. Um, I sort of posted in that, that as well that if I haven't been out for a few days, whether it's through, through injury, I hurt my calf at the beginning of the year and I really couldn't run. And that re- I really felt it, really felt the, the sort of the, the sense of not just the physical release but more the mental release that, that comes from that the the sort of the the ability to be out in the open air with my own thoughts and feelings usually with a podcast to be honest I'm usually listening to something I can't really listen to music when I'm running but listen to music 99% of the rest of the day um yeah just the being out physical exercise seeing the scenery go by really fast obviously because you know I run at such <laughs> speeds um <laughs> But, you know, being out in nature in the open spaces, maybe it's a a reaction to the claustrophobic feelings, but it's just so, so important to me now. Mm, It's really great, isn't it? And you notice things when you're running as well. I mean, it's been so essential for my mental health too. And just the little things that you notice, it feels like a very mindful activity. You notice things like the weather changing and the sunrise or the sunset or just these, these little shifts in the universe around you that I, I I don't think I normally notice the rest of the time. So I'm just in my own bubble of Zoom calls or getting on trains or trying to make the kids dinner. Yeah, it's great. There's nothing quite like it, is there? No, and it's become a real essential part of, of every day. And then the other thing that we noted down was was music. And you've just mentioned it as well. I mean, that is a huge part of every single day. I, I try to listen to music as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working on something that requires thought and concentration, I'm lucky that I can do that. I know lots of people can't listen to music and can't have things going on in the background, but I find it really helps. Me too, me too. And there are certain kinds of music I would put on to lift my mood or give me the energy to tackle a really big 
project or to write a presentation as well. It's like medicine, um, isn't it? Music is medicine. Music is medicine. It totally is. After parkrun on a Saturday morning, getting back, having a shower and then putting some records on with a cup of coffee. That's that's my happy space. Putting a record on and, and uh, yeah, just sitting and letting the letting the, the the rest of the day sort of wash over me, uh, knowing that I've I've done my bit in the morning. And there was one thing else, uh, one other thing I thought I'd mention, and that's you know um, we've talked on this podcast before about gaming and um, computer games and stuff like that. That's another one that I sort of questioned why at um, you know over forty years of age. You know, I'm not going to go too much further than admitting that part of it but over 40 years of age why I still feel the need to sit in front of an Xbox and play computer games from from time to time and I think that again is a sort of an escapism thing I really find that as a a sort of a release from everything that I've been thinking about if I pick up a book I sometimes find that I can't quite get into the book because my mind is spinning around and racing around with things that have happened during the day music sort of takes that away a little bit but it's computer games, video games that I find if I want to leave everything behind, then I can completely sink into another world playing a, a, a video game, which I think is probably the reason why I'm still so intent on playing them at every available opportunity, which is much further and farther between than it ever used to be. But um, now I just look at my kids playing computer games and wish I could be doing the same. But, <laughs> you know, pressures of running your own business, you don't get to do it that often. I feel the same about uh, books, actually. If I want to escape and just be transported somewhere completely different, I will always pick up a book. I think I read a book probably probably every week, more or less, unless it's a really huge book, then it will it will take me a bit longer. Um, but yeah, that, that is something. That is, if I have a book on the go, I notice that I'm in a much better place of my well-being. Totally. And... Related to that, our next three episodes are going to be related to books that we've read specifically for the podcast and interviewed their authors. So after this one with with Sarah Hughes, you can uh, look forward to uh, a couple more episodes uh, focused on on books and some of the things that we've been reading and enjoying. Mm, Yes, we have three very exciting books coming up. Uh, with three very exciting very different authors Uh, so there should be something for everyone there and I think in one of those episodes we're also going to talk about some of the books that we've enjoyed uh, reading recently as well and hopefully some books that will be really useful for leaders and everyone else out there who's listening so we look forward to talking about that as well certainly do and now then for our conversation with Sarah Hughes We are super excited to welcome Dr. Sarah Hughes, Chief Executive of MIND, to Starts at the Top today. Sarah has worked in mental health and criminal justice for 34 years. After originally training as a social worker, Sarah has spent the majority of her career in the voluntary sector within both community and secure settings. Sarah became CEO of CPSL Mind in 2004 and has also led the prestigious think tank, the Centre for Mental Health. She also holds advisory and board roles with organisations including the FA, Cooth PLC and IAMHL. 
Sarah is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, Siena and Salzburg Global. She's also a social commentator and has been invited to speak at many international events. In 2022, she achieved her professional doctorate studying women and leadership. Sarah, welcome to Starts to the Top. And how on earth do you do all these things alongside your enormous day job? I literally have no idea. Just as you were reading that, I thought, I don't even know who that is. Who's that? <laughs> but to be fair, the doctorate did take quite a long time. So, uh, you know, I started that probably, it feels like 150 years ago, but in the end, I got there. Amazing. Well, congratulations on that as well. And I'm sure we'll be digging into some of those issues as we go through the conversation today. Uh, So let's begin at the beginning with an issue that I think is very much related to the day job and and what you'll be seeing day to day in mind. Do you think that the pandemic has changed how we talk about mental health in the workplace? And if so, how? That's such a great question. And in many respects, uh, it has and it hasn't. Uh, so on one hand, I think that, you know, we had already pre-pandemic got to a stage where workplace mental health was really well understood. You know, we had got to a point where most employers knew that mental health was a priority for them. I think the pandemic has complicated matters in all sorts of ways. So whilst I think workplaces still retain that concern for mental health, I think there are now lots of competing demands for employers to think about. So when we're thinking about organisational culture and well-being in a hybrid environment, for instance, because most organisations are operating in that way, uh, that changes not only individuals' mental health and, and the way that they consider that, but also how they prioritise it, for instance. But also how do we as employers make sure that we are able to provide good conditions for mental health in a hybrid context when we're not seeing everybody all of the time. And so there are all sorts of layers and nuance now that that weren't there before. And I don't think yet we've got to a place where we really have truly understood that, truly navigated our way round not only the impact that people have had on themselves and their families, because I do think that people are changed as a result of the pandemic. So we have that. We have the changing complexity, certainly of the charity sector um, and our role in society. And then plus we have this, how on earth do we bring people together under these circumstances? And all those things, I think, have meant that the charity sector or organisations generally, their ability to deal with mental health is a bit more compromised than it was before. Do you think then that we're not talking about mental health enough at the moment? Because it felt like in the thick of lockdown, people were talking about it a lot. And I thought that was just brilliant. Do you think it's still as much of a priority as as it should be in organisations? Uh, and this is a really difficult one because I don't I don't think so. So whilst we do hear from the public um, that mental health is still an absolute priority for them, again, uh, I think we're in a situation where the competing demands on individuals are such that you can't really almost see the wood for the trees. So, you know, when people are thinking about what are the worst things for me at the moment, most people would say the cost of living crisis. So that is number one concern. But of course, the cost of living crisis has a direct impact on the nation's mental health. 
And so that, that, you know, again, it's the way people are talking about it. And actually, when they're talking about the cost of living, often they're talking about the deep stress and harm that is being caused to their mental health all the time. So I think the way we're talking about it is different. I think that the governments um, are struggling to prioritise it because of all of the competing demands. I think we've got a scenario where demand is absolutely outstripping resource. And so we're in a sort of situation that we haven't been in for a long time. And so whilst I don't think it's hopeless, because I still think we've conquered a narrative about mental health out there in society, I think that the pandemic has set us back quite considerably. And I do think that we're um, struggling to get mental health prioritised within a kind of policy context. And all of those things are very challenging. And that's so interesting what you were saying there about when someone is talking about a stressful situation, how that almost becomes, I'm talking about mental health, but I'm not talking about mental health. So I can, I can talk about how the cost of living crisis is making me feel stress, but perhaps I'm not yet talking about, well, this is having an impact on my mental well-being. Yeah, and and I think that people are recognising that they're more stressed. I think people are recognising that they're uh, experiencing higher levels of anxiety. People are depressed because they're, you know, their lives are being hugely compromised. And so all of that, I think, is absolutely true. We can see that from the numbers of people trying to seek help. But there are also a lot of people that aren't seeking help, that are just kind of motoring along every day, just trying to survive at the moment. And I think it's in that notion of survival that we are losing our ability to think, Okay, how do we take a long um, term view and how do we really deal with some of the problems that we know are contributing? So, for instance, the cost of living crisis, you know, I'm not an economist, so I don't have any answers. But what I do know is, for instance, those people people on benefits, um, the answer to me wouldn't be to bring in more sanctions, uh, which is potentially, uh, you know, the outcome or, you know, uh, complicated assessments. The answer would be the opposite to make it easier in a way. Uh, And those are the things that I think we're we're really challenged with. Mm -hmm. And I would hypothesise that all of this is even harder to deal with, isn't it? Because of the ongoing impact of the last three years yeah for sure I mean the last three years I mean it's interesting isn't it I was scrolling through TikTok last night and there was a TikTok on there that um had one of the um very famous TikToks from 2020 you know and it took me right back to those times and it's still really hard to believe that we've all been through this right that we all had this collective global experience of chaos and fear and And yet it's 2023. It's not as if it's 10 years past. And yet we're just we're just all trying to get on without really thinking about, hold on here. We've been through a global pandemic. Do we truly understand the impact of that? And I think the desire to move on and forget about it um, will have long term consequences if we're not careful. Now, I completely agree with that. And I'd really love to talk about that a bit more because I'm with you. I I, I feel that, you know, what I I hear from people, I talk, oh, that was just like a bad dream. It felt like that never happened. And now we're all back to normal, whatever that means. Is that a 
healthy way to deal with the trauma and upheaval of the last three years? I mean, how do you think that people are processing some of the things that they've been through? I think I think people really I think the desire to run as far away from it as possible is really strong. I I know from just my own experience, this idea of, you know, it does feel like a dream. It's very, you know, kind of far away, locked away um, in some. But I but I think that the risk is. It was so extreme. And when we think about children, young people, they went to school one day and then they came home and they were told that you don't go to school now for six months. To to comprehend the long-term impact of that, I think is really challenging. Now, there are lots of pieces of research that's happening in the background. So, you know, there are studies that are looking at this, but we're not going to get the the kind of outcome of those for some time, really, in terms of thinking about that long-term impact. But we know enough to know that, you know, we've got situations whereby, you know, children, um, uh, their learning is delayed. There are mental health consequences of that. For those of us who, you know, were at home and, and for some of us experienced domestic violence, we were locked in a house with, you know, uh, within a violent context. That will have a long term impact. These are these were unusual circumstances, and I hope you know we'll never experience quite the same again. But when we're kind of pushing down trauma, um, which we tend to do, it's a natural human reaction. Um, sadly, it does pop up in other places, and that can pop up in terms of our physical health. People start to you know experience a great deal of physical discomfort. If we don't kind of surface it and and there is some I mean, there there are some positives here in that this was a collective global experience. There are some people, though, within that that had a great time, you know, uh, whilst we were all in the I think there's a saying we were all in the same ocean, but we weren't in the same boat. You know, so some of us didn't experience a huge amount of trauma. So we don't want to pathologise everybody as well. We don't want to say everybody's now mentally ill because we all experienced a traumatic event, because that's also not true. Um, but for those of us that did have a very difficult experience, we we are nowhere near properly understanding that, certainly not for children, young people. And I think for adults in the workplace, it's still... I mean, we still have it. People are, you know, they walk into rooms and they're still surprised that there are other people in there or, you know, people still, you know, when you go to shake somebody's hand, they have to remind themselves that they can do it now. You know, all of these little things build up to a big thing if we don't basically confront it. I think the crux of of what you're saying in my experience of this is that I think the pandemic sort of woke a lot of people up to the fact that mental health and well-being was something that they needed to focus on. Yeah, I'd never really thought about mental health before the pandemic. I think it really focused my mind on actually, do you know what? There, there is an impact of you know day to day on 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 my mental well being and my my health. But at least the conversation started, and I think the the, the difference for me at the moment is that there is a, a conversation that a lot of people are involved in recognizing mental health as a as an issue as as, an, as, as a challenge. And the, the gap now is, you know, what do we do about that? How do we turn mm-hmm. that into action? So a lot of people talking, not so many people doing. And and just before we started talking, we talked about that impact on young people. And, you know, listeners will be bored of me saying, you know, father to a 14-year-old, but a 14-year-old boy is not the most vocal 
uh, and not the most um, easy person in the world to express their feelings and what they've been through and what they're they're going through. So you've got that real mix of of children and young people growing up through that 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 time, not being able to go out, finding home as a place of shelter, communicating through their mobile devices, and being in a position now, three years later, where they're at the age where communication with other people is not necessarily their strongest point. And you're in this sort of maelstrom of of worry and fear, plus then the fact that government is slow to react to it, plus then the fact that we don't quite know what to do with it. And I think we're we're building up to a well another pandemic, aren't we? Well, I mean, I think health. it's yeah, I mean it's really interesting because I've been cautious about using the language of pandemic and crisis. But the reality is I think we are we are at a tipping point. Um, and this is because people can't access help uh, at the time that they need it. And if people could do that, then uh, crisis would be head off at the past. I mean, you know, we we really are. We have got a kind of unhealthy um, focus on uh, allowing people to go into crisis when we know so much of the experiences we see in services particularly are because we're unable to um, get the funding or establish the services that offer that prevention agenda. So if we think about children, young people, uh, I would argue that school environments, and look, I this is not a, I don't want to be down on schools at all because I think they have a pretty tough tough job and I you know just having to do any homeschooling uh, was horrific for parents I think in the main we we all hated it and um, you know I certainly did and thankfully my husband was able to do the majority of it but um, the, the reality is is that school environments are currently organized in a way that just absolutely does not enhance mental well-being and and that's really hard to say because you know it's our education system so important and we're very lucky to have it but look we've got a real interesting shift and this is this is another thing that i think is incredibly important about the narrative of mental health which is in schools there's a huge drive to manage behavior and so we you will see a huge amount of uh, of discussion talking about uniforms talking about stuff that you just think really really is that is that <laughs> more important are you saying that is more important than a child's well-being you do know these children uh unlike anybody in this you know in the last 50 decades have had the most extraordinary experience and you're talking about the type of skirt that they're wearing I will never accept that that is contributing to good mental health. And I heard somebody say this morning about what we've got is a behaviour approach in schools that is focused on punishment and not discipline. So I am somebody who thinks children absolutely do need discipline and boundaries and parameters. You know, I I have also got two children and a teenage girl. And for all sorts of reasons, all of those things are very challenging. Um, but, you know, they also have to exist in this in this environment where, you know, their emotional needs are not prioritised, certainly not in the school environment. And I think that we we just are making a rod for our own back. I mean, it's just nonsense. And I don't think that teachers you know, they're really struggling themselves. I think their own mental health compromised in many respects. 
But I don't think they want to be going around talking to children about the length of their skirts or, you know, is their tie on straight? Um, And we've got to reprioritise. We're not doing that. So it's almost like, you know, um, we're looking at a way of managing and containing rather than dealing with the source of the problem. And, you know, until we do that, it's the same with issues of poverty. You know, we know that if you're a child living in poverty, you're four times more likely to experience mental illness. You know, so why are we then talking about benefit sanctions in this way? So it's all of those sorts of things. And and I think that, you know, our young people, for instance, they have I was talking about this the other day that our young people, they develop their approach their worldview through an online lens because that's where they find Mm. their tribes their people they understand and they can communicate without that fear of social anxiety it's not quite the same and yet we are trying to contain that and close it down kids don't want to spend less time online they want to spend safer better time online yet our approach is to say everything online is bad So we're we're kind of offering, you know, it's a confusing narrative for children to navigate. Yeah, and I think just a really quick point on on that is some of our best conversations with our kids start with, I saw a video on TikTok, Dad, or I saw this thing on Instagram. And it it does, you know, it's propelling their thought process because that's the way it's it's coming in. Okay, they, they, you know, to one degree or another, and it will be school dependent and teacher dependent, they're either being challenged at school or they're not being challenged at school. But this window into the world that they have through their devices, as long as we understand it as parents, as teachers, as as, as, as people that are involved in their lives, well, it's their only window, isn't it, quite frankly? You know, absolutely. It's, absolutely. And we can't keep, you know, the, the idea that we can turn it off is a fantasy. And, you know, as I was saying, you know, children have, our children have dealt with a global pandemic. They have, um, they're the only generation that has um, their digital natives and have grown up in this explosion of the digital environment. They are facing a global catastrophe. They are uh, hearing a 24 news cycle uh, that goes on about the worst appalling things happening all the time around the world that, you know, they're being told you're facing extinction virtually. I mean, what, what, what are they meant to do with all of that? And then somebody says, you know, they're snowflakes. What? Our mm. children are incredibly resilient they're different of course they have a a, an understanding of the world that we never did that's just a fact yeah we we've had conversations about this with previous guests haven't we zoe that when those young people are entering the workplace so you know three or four years down the line for my son but you know entering the workplace that they bring all that experience with them and we've we had a conversation quite recently you know it's not about snowflakes and it's not about oh you know these young people they have no staying power now it's that they they have a view of the world that just says why would i hang around for for this to get better if this experience is not one that is making me happy is 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 you know putting money in my pocket is yeah good for my mental well-being then why would i stay um and that's being seen in organizations as well they're a bit flaky they're just jumping from job to job it's like no go out and experience things because i've been locked in my room for the last three years and why wouldn't i 
and and also that that sense of you know we 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 we're getting people into the workplace that haven't had you know social experiences for years and then we expect them to know how to do it right away and you know walk, walking into an organization as an employee for anybody is is tough going you know it's tough going if you've never done it before and you've been locked up in your room for all these months and years and you've not had the usual experience at university or whatever um it's just that our expectations are all over the place and I I say to um my husband you know when uh we've got thinking about our kids and you know we, we think you know well we've brought them up to have this view of the world as well that we want them to mm. be able to say what's good for them what isn't good for them we don't want them to be uh, repressed children you know I was brought up in a generation of you know children were seen and not heard that's not the way we do it now you know so but there are consequences to that um and that means that children have got more of a voice so what do we do do we listen to them or not we've got to make up our minds some days I'm better at that than others so I'm saying all this but I am also a human being and you know um you know when you're faced with a teenager who is you know um speaking facts that are very well articulated and probably right as a parent you still think oh gosh I've got to now deal with that oh. well hope, hopefully your children will listen to this and then have conversations yeah. really mum really every day I tell you every day and it's funny my, I mean my my kids are uh, and this is the thing about um their online life like you said earlier they're they're developing knowledge and they're developing expectations and we have really got to kind of keep up uh, I don't have the answer and I think there are all sorts of generational issues too that get played out in the workplace you know about what we can tolerate what we can't and that's the the bit that I was kind of referring to earlier on which is there are all sorts of splintering that is very difficult to kind of work out. You know, but there will be older people in organisations saying, why aren't they doing that? Can't they just do that? And and then it'll be the other way around. And we've, we've I think organisations have got to find space to talk about it. Think about the culture, what's happening now, and we might get somewhere. And that begins with leaders, doesn't it? So if we take that first chunk of that challenge so 2023 obviously being a a really tough year for the sector and I talk to leaders so often who are inevitably and very under finding this a real challenge for their own mental health what can they do where can they go and get support so the first thing that I always say about leadership and your own mental health is that you must have a peer group and so, the, you know, we have to sustain ourselves. And it's very difficult to find in your organisation, um, you know, a set of people that you feel like you can be properly connected with. So I'm very lucky, and you know, Zoe, that I prioritise my relationships with other chief execs in the sector. And I do that because my mental health needs it. And that is first and foremost what what happens. You know, when I get in a room with um, Kate Lee or Deborah Cocktailer or Tessie Ojo and I can say, oh my gosh, this is, and, and their response is positive and I feel like I'm being held and then I can offer that with them to that back. Um, there is something I think about realising and I don't think we're good at it in the charity sector, uh, realising what your limitations are 
And I think there is something about coming to terms with who you are. And, and the best way to do that is with a coach. So I also say, and it's very difficult for small organisations to find the funding for it, but there are lots of pro bono offers as well, which I urge leaders to look for. That coaching relationship is key. If I didn't have an executive coach, I think I would be very vulnerable, incredibly vulnerable, because unlike your peer friends, um, if you've got a good executive coach, they'll properly do the unpicking and the challenging in a safe way. You know, you do look to your friends in the peer sector, you know, in the peer, in the peer group for that uh, love and containment and kindness. With your executive coach, you can be a little bit more kind of getting beneath the surface, I think, often. So I think that's important. And then I think that the other thing that has always been important to my mental health, and again, something I've had conversations, particularly with other female leaders about, is the idea of authenticity. So, you know, that sense of how can I be myself in these jobs that are very tough, that have high levels of scrutiny, both internally in your organisation and externally, um, how do we how do we kind of contain all of that? Um, and so I think that there is, you know, an acceptance of the the role being very difficult as well. You know, this is, these aren't easy jobs. So you know, we have to almost kind of come to terms with it in a way. I think there is also um, leaders aren't good at talking about stress with each other. So again, we have to kind of uh, think about the narration of leadership, which talks a lot about resilience. Now, resilience is all right if you've, you're working within the conditions that support that. So that means peer support, coaching. It means having a sense of uh, authenticity, being able to be yourself, know yourself. So Polly Neat speaks a lot about this. It's her frame, mm -hmm. be yourself, know yourself, um, uh, know your limitations and know where to access help. So, you know, the accessing help bit at the moment is tricky because we're just not good at facing into the fact that sometimes our mental health is really low. So we've got all sorts of resources. You can go to Akivo, Chief Executive in Crisis. There are various helplines. Chief Execs very, very rarely use their own uh, employee support systems. In fact, I don't know that I've met one Chief Executive that has called in to their employee assistance programme. I know I haven't. So, you know, I think we've got to start using the resources that we deploy in our own organisations as well and show that we're doing that. You know, say I access support. I think it's also incumbent on leaders to be brave and talk about vulnerability. Um, but we hate doing that. I, I hate doing that. Um, you know, and I, I think I have quite a lot of insight, but we're brought up with this idea of leadership being you know, you have to be strong, you have to be resilient, you have to show the world that you can do the job. Sometimes that's not how you feel. And those two realities can be true as well, can't they? Because I think what you've described there with all these, you know, amazing women I know in the sector, like yourself and Polly Nee and Kate Lee, who's coming on the podcast in a few oh, weeks, amazing. actually, and, and Karen at CFG is that, 
everyone is is juggling so much and doing so much and yet you're having to also do this I describe it almost a bit like a second job isn't it of creating this blueprint for new ways of leading I think there are there is a new wave of charity leadership that's been evolving over the last I think five years pre-pandemic for sure um, I would say this that I think that it is uh, and I think it is women who are trailblazing some of this and that is in the showing of vulnerability I think that is in the showing of um, let's share and collaborate and that's not to say that my male colleagues don't do that this is not a you know I'm a feminist leader I, and I, I very much see myself as that but I do think that that um, way of leading is being kind of brought in by all of the women that are getting these senior roles that are saying, hold on, what we know is to really meet the needs of beneficiaries, we have to work better together. So what do we need to do to foster that? And some of that is developing relationships, letting go of power, which is scary, but necessary. Um, and if you really believe in social change, then it demands organisations and therefore leaders to say, well, we're going to take the foot off the pedal in terms of feathering our own caps and really reminding ourselves the purpose of, you know, the organisation and therefore the leadership. And that is, that's really hard. Um, and it demands a lot of courage. And I do think that leaders today have to have very different skills to the skills that they needed 10 years ago. There's no command and control way of working that lands well in this environment. There is no, um, I think, um, positive outcome to uh, just kind of carrying on as we always have done. If the world is different, that means we have to be different. Yeah, and I don't think you need to apologise for the the, the the sort of the feminist approach there I think it's it's really difficult we know it's difficult for men to you know sure. to to ask for help in many situations you know that's why so many men are out there suffering and dying from prostate cancer because they don't come forward and say you know I've got a, a, a problem here and I think that's probably the case for a lot of male leaders they want to be seen as in control and knowing and you know having the answers when Possibly they don't. It's probably awful for their mental well-being and, and um, mental health. But also, you know, we've had people on, on coming onto the podcast saying, look, you know, again, coming back to the pandemic, the pandemic has actually forced me to reassess how I am as a leader and recognise that there are things I don't know. So I am going to surround myself with people that, that, that can help. And your hope is that, you know, male leaders are surrounding themselves with people that are going to force them to answer some of those questions and to show that more vulnerable side. Um, yeah. And certainly a couple of experiences I saw of male leaders through the pandemic starting to explore that in a way. I don't know whether that's continued post-pandemic, whether they've fallen back into old tropes, but certainly I think, I think, through the I pandemic got, being more expressive. Yeah. No, I do think we've got some really great trailblazers for that. Um, we've got um, Matt Hyde from the Scouts, uh, you know, who's been talking about, you know, managing that emotional intelligence with, you know, um, uh, the leadership role. So I do think that we've got 
lots of men within the sector, like you say, that are taking that step. Um, but they've got to be supported in doing that because it would yeah. be very easy to retreat. And um, because the reaction from people outside or even people within your own organisation can be difficult to navigate. And, you know, people are very worried about not having what they what they think is strong leaders. And, yeah. you know, I know that strength and warmth are critical for leadership, um, but it's in the definition of what strength means. And it doesn't mean, uh, you know, basically I've got my sword and my battle shield and that's where I'm at. It doesn't mean that. Mm, yeah, that's a very limited definition of what strength is, isn't it? And I think what I'm loving about seeing all these kind of new sorts of leaders emerging across the centre is that it feels much more much more kind of multifaceted and a much more skillful way to approach leadership because if you can shift between all these different modes and you can be the person who is strong whatever that means but also warm and also have those very high levels of emotional intelligence then the fact is that you are going to have much more you can offer as a leader because you can do more well, indeed. And I think, you know, one of the, um, you know, we've got some great male leaders uh, that are taking that step, but we've also got some great people who are trying to help us do the thinking. So John Amici, for instance, and I don't know whether you've caught up on any of the stuff that he does, but he's also talking about that kind of culture of leadership. And, you know, I mean, he is a man who's got comes from a very kind of sporting background and people would have all sorts of views on a perception of leadership that he might have but he's deconstructing all of that and uh, I would urge uh, you know and this this is not just for men I think all leaders just to go and spy some of his work which is saying you know uh, culture and leadership has to shift and emotional intelligence has to be driven up and this sense of personal um kind of responsibility in that weird way needs to be scaled down you know that kind of sense of um uh, it's all about me you know the ego of leadership uh, so i would recommend those men particularly who might be struggling go and check out john's work yeah, it's what we've started to see isn't it zoe in the interviews that we've had is people sort of asking that question about you know am i enough and who do i surround myself with to to sort of move that forwards as well so i think taking the ego out of leadership is is a really key point yeah i mean i mean there's a there's a difficulty in some ways because i think to be a leader or the named leader in an organization you do need to have a little bit of an ego you have to you have to sort of believe you can do it and um but it is but it is the centering of i versus we so mm. you know i see the purpose of my leadership which is again really hard you know i'm a human being and i don't always get this right but that is about galvanizing the we and therefore i am also the we um but centering all of the decisions on all of the kind of uh, progress or evolution of an organisation around what you think or what you want is probably not the best thing to do. Definitely. No, that makes lots of sense. Um, and we've talked a lot about change this morning and in particular, you know, how leaders need to change. And I think one of the things that I really love you've been talking about recently on the third set of podcasts in particular was how the sector needs to change. 
how comfortable do you think we are as a sector with the idea that we need to change? So I think we're getting comfortable. It is the act of actually doing the change that's difficult. So you will get a lot of leaders in a room agreeing that change is needed. I think there's almost quite a lot of consensus on what what change we're talking about. So we're talking about an increase in diversity amongst leadership. We're talking about a um, kind of way of working that is more inclusive in terms of partnerships. Um, we are talking about our role in human rights and civil rights. And, you know, we so we a lot of those conversations are happening. But to make that change is the problem. So, you know, we're very concerned about if you make that change, most likely organisations will lose funds. They might get smaller. Uh, they'll be giving away power. Um, you know, we will be working in partnership at a higher level. Uh, leaders need to be front and centre in those social justice conversations, all of those things together. Um, but there is a great risk. And so I think that we're, we're, we're getting to a point where we agree we just don't know how to do it yet. And we don't know what we're doing. So even for us as a big organisation, as a federation, what it might mean to us is um, much more devolution. So we do less at the centre and more through our network. And that's absolutely right, because the people that need us most are all around the country. And, and so it makes sense, right, that we would do that. But to do that means that we have to give up power. That's hard. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a really big question facing the sector at the moment, isn't it? How we hold power, how we share power and who we should be sharing it with. Yeah. And, and actually, you only I mean, th- this is the thing about power is, is that is that it only really works in, you know, well, if it is kind of power by consent uh and and i think that what we're seeing is is that consent from all sorts of places is being withdrawn so you know the government is withdrawing power from charities in a way in terms of saying you know we want you to be quieter we 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 don't don't really enjoy the kind of very loud leadership um as i don't think that's just government i think you know lots there's been a sort of a, a little bit of a a sort of anxiety about charity leaders speaking out. So, you know, when we think about giving up power, um, it does demand thinking about, well, where do we draw our power from? Who do we draw it from? And therefore, who are we giving it to? And, you know, this kind of idea, and actually, I don't like the word empower because I don't like the notion that I'm just bestowing power on somebody else. But I do understand that I need to be disempowered sometimes as a charity leader in order for beneficiaries to thrive. Mm, And And not everyone's comfortable with that notion, are they? No, it's and, you know, there are there are days when I'm really up for it and then something might happen, you know, where ultimately I'm still accountable so if you're giving up power, but you're still accountable, that can make for a very difficult outcome as well. So when we're thinking, we have to be realistic, giving up power, we also need to think about, well, can we give up accountability? And we're not ready to do that because it's everything so risky. Um, 
So I, th- I think there's a lot of good reasons why we struggle to do it. But what I do see in the public arena and in society as a whole, that if we really want to achieve the ambition that we have, that there is a fair society, people get what they need, it it will demand us to challenge our, what I think is a very traditional institutional kind of notion of charity. Mm, Yeah, exactly. And all that thing of, you know, the four heads of charity and how all of that comes out of a very 19th century notion of charity. I know that's what you were speaking out against quite rightly on the Third Sector podcast. Can we just ask you one final quick question about mental health before we wrap up? So if you're a leader and you're listening to this and you've been inspired by all the fantastic insight you've shared today about mental health, what's the one thing that you could then go away and do to help get that conversation about mental health going again with your team? Thank you for um, asking me this question. And it's funny, when you said, oh, people getting insights. Uh, I've had a couple of menopause moments during this conversation. So if I... Really? There is a bit... Oh, yeah, where I can't remember what I was meant to say next. Um, I did it on Channel 4 News the other day as well. I couldn't couldn't remember the word that I needed to find. And it was like two seconds. So if I've gone off... I do that all the time. No, at all. You've been amazing, Sarah. What pro? (laughs) It's so hilarious. Uh, there are moments I'm getting better at bringing it round but there will be moments in this podcast you'll listen back and you'll go oh yeah she forgot what she was going to say next anyway we'll come well when you listen to it you'll see that but um but for for people listening in there's a reassurance for also um menopausal women out there I feel your pain I'm with you in solidarity um I think what what we really need to do is we need to just remember that um, when you open up a conversation, people very quickly think that their their ask will be um, for leaders to do something about it. And sometimes that's why we're frightened to ask or to open up conversations, because you think, well, I don't want people, I I don't know, what will I do? Uh, You know, actually, sometimes just being able to hold with a team you know, this is, we're having a difficult time. How is everybody feeling? Uh, I think that that's helpful. Sometimes it's just saying to folk, you know, we need to kind of reconvene around a mental health agenda. So actually being quite pointed about it, because then people will kind of gravitate, I think. And then there's the, uh, the, the other bit, which I think is how do we talk to individuals through one-to-ones? Um, because sometimes opening up these conversations in groups, for instance, can be very difficult. But being able to develop relationships with individuals in a way that means that mental health can be a conversation that we can have openly, I think is really is really important. Creating the culture of conversation, I think first and foremost, you do need to have a resource available to people so you do need to be able to give people something uh, a conversation is not going to cut it completely mm, I, I love that point Sarah I mean the one thing I try and do with my team is just to normalize talking about it and to you know to talk about my experience with mental health. just to I always say to people I want us all to feel that talking about mental health is as normal as talking about the weather because you come to work and you might talk about your bad back right so why can't you talk about the fact you're feeling anxious today or or you know having a menopause moment or whatever it might be and that should just be totally normal yeah for sure and and you know we're we're close to it but not close enough Mm. there's still there is still a journey to travel and um so that's why we just can't stop we can't stop mind won't stop 
Absolutely. That is a great note to end on, Sarah. Thank you so much. That's been amazing. We would love to have you back again sometime because I feel like you're just getting started on all the amazing things that you are doing. And thank you so much. I found this really inspiring and I know our listeners will have too. That's really kind of you, Zoe and Paul. Lovely to meet you and uh, I'll see you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to Sarah for making the time to come onto the podcast. We will share links to Mind's website in the show notes. Our next episode is going to be, as we said, with an author, with Matilda Della Torre, who is author of Conversations from Calais, sharing refugee stories. I'm sure you've seen um, Matilda's work on Instagram. And if you haven't, I strongly suggest you go and have a look at Conversations from Calais. It's uh, really, really quite remarkable. You can support the podcast by leaving us a five-star review wherever you listen to us, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google. Uh, And if you've enjoyed today's episode, uh, please do share it with uh, someone who it's made you think of. Thank you for listening. Thank you all and bye for now. Bye.